coming up. The best of 2009 Encore Week closes out with Nora Gedgaddis. I'm Jimmy Moore, and this is the Lemon La Vida Locard Show. Hey, and welcome back to the Livin' La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore, episode 323. And yes, this is the final day of the Encore Week that we presented all this week with the best podcast guest interviews from 2009 with brand new interviews all this week. Monday, we heard from the great Dr. Richard Bernstein. Tuesday, we had Mark Sisson. Wednesday was Julia Ross. Thursday was Sally Fallon. And today, I am so pleased to bring back my friend Nora Gedgaudis from Primal Body, Primal Mind. And she is here to answer lots and lots of questions that you had for her um, to bring her back and ask her. And that's exactly what we did. And Nora, in her trademark style, did an outstanding job that I can't wait for you to hear today's podcast. First, I wanted to say a special thank you to our two sponsors for today's Encore Week episode. Both of them are low-carb retail stores. The first one is lowcarbu.com. That's L-O-C-A-R-B, the letter U.com. They are the ones that have the really hard-to-find low-carb products that you might be looking for. The, the house foods, tofu shirataki noodles. Um, they have uh, some zero-carb bagels and breads and brownies and all kinds of things that you might be looking for as an alternative on your healthy low-carb lifestyle. Well, Low Carb U has all of them in stock. Check them out at lowcarbu.com for a whole new low-carb U. Also, be sure to visit carbsmart.com. Life just got better with CarbSmart. And you can also find lots and lots of great products for your healthy low-carb lifestyle at CarbSmart. Uh, they carry lots of books. They have my book right now, 21 Life Lessons from Living La Vida Low Carb, as an exclusive. Uh, they have it on sale for $19.99. So if you're wanting to get a copy of my book, it sells for $28 on Amazon. But if you order it from CarbSmart.com, it is just $19.99. So go check that out there. They also have lots of other excellent books and products for your healthy low-carb lifestyle. Again, that's CarbSmart.com. Now, without further delay, let's get into my Encore Week podcast interview with Nora Gedgaudis. Welcome back to a special edition of the Living La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. Today we have with us another one of those guests that you thought was the best of the best of 2009. What were they thinking, Nora? Uh, I can't imagine. <laughs> Nora Gedgaudis is her name. You might remember her from uh, back in October when I interviewed her not that long ago. She has a book entitled Primal Body, Primal Mind, Empower Your Total Health the Way Evolution Intended and Didn't. She also uh, is the host of a, an excellent podcast show. If you have not listened to this radio show, Show. What are you doing? What are you missing? It's called yeah, what's Primal, the matter with Body, you? <laughs> Primal <laughs> Body, Primal Mind Radio Show, and I'll have a link to it in the show notes section at theliveandlowcarbshow.com. Nora, welcome back. Well, Jimmy, thank you so much for having me back. 
it's really an honor to be here. Well, and, and you certainly made an impact on my listeners the last time you were here. Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people, Nora, was like, oh, this woman is so educated. She gets it. Too many of the experts out there, even in the paleo world, uh, they get part of it right, but then they're scared of saturated fat. And then there's right. others that don't really get it right on the exercise. And a lot of people commented how you really are the complete package for people that are looking for the paleo way of life. Well, I'm flattered. <laughs> um, and, you know, who knew? <clears throat> but I, I really, really, uh, I appreciate the, the kind words. And I, I certainly appreciate the... Uh, you know the the positive words of of your listeners. Uh, it's 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 really great to hear. Well, I want to share one from Philip. He wrote her comprehensive foundational approach, drawing on evolutionary pressures, make the most sense to me. Her information on moderating protein intake in order to maximize longevity sets her apart in a crowded field. Oh well, thank you, Philip. <laughs> um, yeah, I um I long time ago when I when I uh, many many years ago when I had gotten into the whole paleolithic approach to things, uh, you know, as soon as I thought about nutrition from an evolutionary perspective, it was like getting hit between the eyes with a sack of wet cement. It just suddenly everything made sense. Well, yeah. of course that's the way to look at it. Um and early on in in my in you know, in my approach to all of that, my attitude was, well, just, you know, you can eat all the meat you want, eat all the protein that you want. And um, it's it's the kind of thing that, you know, seemed like an okay thing to me. I, you know, I, you know, pictured, you know, my ancestors sitting down to, a, you know, to a huge woolly mammoth carcass and going at it. And, and it just, it, it seemed like it should be a, a perfectly fine thing to do. And um, and I didn't worry about the fat uh, part of it, but I, it just didn't occur to me to to think uh, too much more about that. And you know, running into uh, you know rethinking things over time, and also coming across some newer information, particularly where human longevity research was concerned, it seemed to make sense to me to uh, rethink that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had, uh, you know, you sort of uh, emailed me a, a question, sort of a why, or that somebody had sent you, of why moderating, you know, protein intake in, in order to maximize longevity right. was so important. And, mm-hmm. well, you know, there are a couple of answers to that. Um, you know, the people who read my book, of course, are familiar with something called uh, mTOR, which stands for mammalian target of rapamycin, which is it's a very recently discovered metabolic pathway. And it turns out that it's very, very closely involved with our reproductive uh, pathways. And it works like a dietary protein sensor. So when it's stimulated by protein in excess of what we need for our basic maintenance and repair, it actually enhances instead of maintenance and repair, enhances cellular proliferation. Now, it, it works closely with insulin pathways, too. And if you happen to be pregnant or wanting to get pregnant or you're a growing child, this is probably a desirable thing. So I, I really want to make a point of, of of commenting on that part of it, which I think I did in passing in the book, but I want to make a special point because I get emails all the time from people who say, well, 
you know, you know, is this good for my child? Or, you know, if I'm pregnant, do I want to, you know, moderate my protein intake that same way? And not necessarily. I think a bit more protein is good if you are trying to conceive or you're, or you're pregnant and you have a, you know, grown fetus or, or you have a growing child. Um, so elite athletes also are just simply going to have a greater protein requirement. So, you know, if you're Lance Armstrong or you're, you know, some bodybuilder or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, that's just common sense. You're probably going to uh, have a greater protein requirement. But the average sort of mild to moderately exercising adult probably doesn't need more than about probably six or seven ounces of complete protein a day. In other words, from animal source foods. Mm-hmm. And by keeping that mTOR pathway down-regulated, what you're doing is you're limiting the potential for cancerous processes, and you're also capitalizing on the known benefits of what is today being called modified caloric restriction, which is known to extend healthy lifespan. And I'm not saying that you're going to drop dead tomorrow if you eat too much meat. The whole idea is um, is, is optimal nutrition, what is optimal, and how is optimal being redefined by what we're learning, not just about how we evolved, but how Mother Nature thinks and how we can get around some of Mother Nature's uh, design, which isn't always compatible with with our own agenda on an individual basis. Right. Nature doesn't give a rat's patootie about us as individuals. Nature is interested in the perpetuation of life. Right. And so... Um, so if we understand how that works and we understand how to work with that, we can sometimes, we can, you know, we can kind of get around, uh, some of mother, mother nature's loopholes and, and really enjoy a more optimal way of being healthy than our ancestors, you know, would have had the occasion or the interest to know about. And the other thing, of course, and the primary thing is to, of course, limit insulin, which isn't, doesn't have anything whatever to do with managing your blood sugar. It's just sort of a trivial side effect of insulin. Insulin is really about the, um, uh, you know, the, the control of your energy stores. Um, and, and, you know, and reproduction and, um, you know, the other benefit associated with moderating protein intake, of course, involves the whole notion of better digestion, which is another side to this. It's more than just uh, mTOR. Most people in our culture nowadays, of course, they tend to suffer from impaired digestive processes and depressed hydrochloric acid production. And yes, I said depressed hydrochloric acid production. I know everybody's on on the little purple pill and, and, and Tums and everything else. Uh, but that 98% of the time, that is not the case. 98% of the time when you're having reflux problems, the problem is not too much acid. It, it's, it's, it's not enough. Hmm. And I talk about that at great length in my book. But right. you have to realize that we're more or less identical to our Paleolithic ancestors. And in nature, in the wild, as we once were, and as our physiology is still designed, everything is more or less feast or famine. So these days we're blessed and cursed with an unnatural access to an unnaturally abundant supply of food and and an abnormal supply of what some try to pass off as food, uh, you know, our Franken foods. Yeah. Um, most of us love the ability 
and, and have the ability uh, to eat as much as we want whenever we want. And to some degree, our instincts tempt us to do this, and it's easy to do. That doesn't necessarily mean that we should actually indulge in this or that it's good for us. And uh, it's unlikely that our ancestors had regular access to several sources of uh, protein three times a day. Um, Maybe not always, even once a day. We know, too, that digestion takes more energy to perform um, than almost any other normal human activity, and that protein digestion in particular is pretty labor-intensive. So by constantly overburdening our digestive uh, tract, in our digestive processes, we're diverting energy toward digestion when we could be doing other things with that. And, you know, furthermore, you know, we're challenging our capacity, too, to produce hydrochloric acid, which tends to diminish over time and with age. And so this then limits our ability um, to make proper use of the protein that we eat and can lead to, you know, excess toxic burden, amino acid deficiencies, mineral deficiencies, among other undesirable you know, things. And by moderating protein at meals, that say two or three ounces or so, and, mm-hmm. and properly chewing that, uh, we stand a much better chance of digesting it reasonably well and making better use of what we're eating. I mean, doesn't that make sense? Yeah. Um, it also, you know, we have a limited capacity to utilize dietary protein. In other words, we require a certain amount for rebuilding and, you know, regenerating ourselves and, and tissues. And over and above that, it's going to get converted to energy, you know, it's got, which means glucose. Right. And it's going to get stored by our body in the same way. And former carbivores, are, which I like to call carbivores, right. are, are especially vulnerable to that. Um, when you've been dependent on sugar for a long time, your body gets really good at converting other things, mainly protein, uh, to sugar too. And this protein converting to sugar can be excess dietary protein, uh, or in the middle of the night when you're not eating, but your body's sugar supply is down, you may also resort to converting your body's protein stores, um, muscle and bone, to sugar too. So mm-hmm. this is the one major vector. Uh, it's one major vector for osteoporosis. Um, if, on the other hand, you train yourself instead to depend on fat instead of sugar for your right. main source of fuel, then this just doesn't happen. And by more or less eliminating dietary carbohydrates, such as starch and sugar, moderating protein. I'm not saying eat tiny bits of protein. I'm saying moderate. You want it to be adequate. And eating enough fat to satisfy your appetite, um, you know, sticking to nutrient-dense foods, you train your body to make the best possible use of what you do eat, and you leave yourself with the necessary raw materials to maximize your own maintenance and repair which is actually the the whole thing um, for anti-aging. And you leave yourself then with energy to, to burn. So it's a, it's a win-win. And it's also heck of a lot less expensive to eat that way, yeah. which is a whole other commentary on our <laughs> for economic climate. So well, anyway. And, and one of the often uh, uh, misunderstood aspects of people that eat a low-carb diet uh, especially in the media, Nora, that I hear is that high protein is so right. unhealthy. And I'm like, have you seen what people that actually eat a low-carb diet 
eat. It's generally very high in fat, has a percentage of total calories, moderate in protein, and low in carbs. I don't know anybody really that eats like a 70% protein diet. I don't know how you do that. No. Well, you do have a lot of people out there, as you said earlier, with with some real misconceptions about dietary fat and saturated fat. And they think good fats means polyunsaturates that bad fats is saturated fats, and of course the processed fats aren't good either, um, but saturated fats get, you know, unwittingly lumped right into that whole um, thing. And um, there are people attempting to buy the, the leanest cuts of meat, you know, while also eating low carb. Well, again, we're one of two things. You're either a fat burner or a sugar burner. Mm-hmm. And I think a, a pitfall for low carb people can be, um, trying to go after reducing both fat and carbs. Yep. It's a mistake because your body's going to make, you know, it's a survival thing, folks. Um, and, and some very, very primal instincts kick in and some very primal hormones like leptin kick in and they're going to make you as hungry as they need to and make you crave whatever it takes, mm-hmm. you know, to keep you going. And um, it, I, I think it's one of the reasons that, you know, people will, will get on some of these um, low-carb diets, and they just can't keep it up. Now, either there are some, and you know, um, there are some issues that cause them to have a difficult time letting go of, say, a carbohydrate addiction, or there are some deficiencies that are driving uh, the, a carbohydrate addiction of some sort, or... Um, they're just not taking in enough energy, and so their body's just going to keep craving mm-hmm. um, the quickest form of energy that it that it can to try to keep itself going. Right. And it's a mistake. You know, we need either fat or we need sugar in order to fuel ourselves. Mm-hmm. And the natural way to fuel yourself is with dietary fat. It's 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 <laughs> it's only logical, people. Yeah. You know, or I can't tell you how many emails I've gotten from people who say I've been doing low carb for a couple of weeks now and I've been eating real good. I've been <laughs> eating chicken and turkey and fish and avoiding red meat because we all know how unhealthy that is. Right. Yeah. And they're like, I'm so hungry. I just don't understand why. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's unfortunate because I think we've had such a dogmatic hammering into our heads that you have to eat low fat because, after all, we all know, we just empirically know that that's healthy for you. And yet, you know, the message that you're trying to communicate is, well, actually, the fat's not so bad when you're cutting your carbs. You actually need it for fuel for the body. Right. And it's not about, you know, that doesn't mean that you're turning right around and eating the amount of fat um, the same, you know, uh, amount of fat that you were eating in carbs. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. You know, fat is inherently very satisfying to the appetite. Yes. People don't tend to, you know, um, binge on on I don't know lard or butter or you know, although as tempting as it is, yeah. Um, uh, they just don't tend to do that. There's only so much that you can consume, and then. You know, you just can't have another bite. It's it's so rich. You know, I just can't eat very much of that. Well, duh, because the hormone leptin kicks in and says, well, you know, hunting is good. We've got enough to eat. You know, we we have enough. And uh, leptin decides whether you're hungry or not. And leptin is a fat sensor. Yeah. So, um, and when that fat sensor is not getting tripped and you're chowing down the chips and whatever else, you're going to eat enormous volumes of food. 
and uh, you're going to be and of course I've, I've talked about this on on shows many many times but I keep trying to drive the point home that if you're looking at the food that you eat strictly from a fuel-based perspective, in other words, you know, energy, calories, um, are the kind of calories that are producing energy. Um, carbohydrates basically function in your body as kindling. They're, they're rocket fuel. They're designed to, uh, you know, sugar burns anaerobically. In other words, uh, usually in a state of – we're meant to use it in a state of emergency, uh, and so you can look upon the, you know, sugar and starch in the diet is basically kindling in the diet. Uh, your, your, you know, supposed whole grains and brown rice and whatever you could sort of look upon as putting twigs on the fire and, and, you know, potatoes, rice, pasta, you know, white rice, pasta, you know, things like that. You could look upon as throwing paper on the fire. And, of course, alcohol is like throwing gasoline or lighter fluid on the fire. <laughs> and, you know, I have a wood stove at home, and um, I'm here to tell you that if I had to heat my house using nothing but kindling, I wouldn't have any other kind of life at all. I'd be sitting there. I'd have one room filled like a pantry, you know, piled to the ceiling with all kinds of, you know, you know debris that I spent all day long. Um, throwing in there, mm. and it, it goes up in a ball of flame, and the flame goes out, and, you, you know, you better be there to throw something else on there. And uh, this is the way 98% of people in our culture live. They're constantly concerned where the next meal is coming from. They're thinking about snacking. Nutritionists are telling people, don't ever skip breakfast. Make sure you eat every two hours. Um, well, if you're living on kindling, then that's what you better do. But it's it, it's it's a way of enslaving yourself to the food industry, for one, yeah. who is only too delighted to, to promote this. Sure. You know, to monoculture agriculture, which of course has established our USDA, our U.S. Department of Agriculture food pyramid, which says we have to have 11 servings of grains a day in order to be healthy, yeah. um, just like feedlot cattle, and uh. yeah, moo, <laughs> <laughs> um, and. Uh, it's it's crazy. Why would nature have designed us in such an insane manner as to make us dependent on something so volatile and unreliable and something as damaging as glucose as a primary source of fuel? And this is believed by medical professionals. It's believed by nutritionists. I had one uh, of my uh, people who read my book, uh, who is now a uh, recovering vegetarian after 15 years of being a vegetarian, is no longer and is just, you know, just standing on the rooftops and, and shouting about this. Uh, she contacted a nutritionist at a women's uh, group and, and just said, oh, you know, you guys need to know about this. And they wrote back saying, you know, you're going to die without carbohydrates. You, literally, they said that she would die unless she ate carbohydrates. Wow. It was amazing. I, my mouth was hanging open, and she's like, what do I tell this person? It's like, you know, you're not going to win over people who are towing a party line yeah. uh, by and large. I think the best thing any of us can do is be our own best ambassadors, you know, um, live our own point of view, and hopefully be some kind of an inspiration to others along the way. Uh, we can't really change the world, but, you know, we can change ourselves, and that's the thing to do. 
Right. So. And being the example for others will then in turn you know, show, the, show them, hey, they're not dying after all. <laughs> exactly. And you get people walking up to you. And I, yeah. and I have uh, people who I have worked with say that they have people walking up to them all the time saying, what do you do? You look great. And, you know, they go, well, you know, and they talk about me, you know, me and my book and, you know, the way that they're eating. And I, you know, eyebrows flicker and, and, um, and, uh, people are surprised to hear it. And, but, you know, it doesn't take a lot of investigation to figure out that it's not, um, well, it may be heresy, <laughs> yeah. um, which literally means to question, um, you know, where the status quo is concerned. But where the science is concerned, there's really not a heck of a lot of debate among serious scientists mm-hmm. um, about the whole issue that dietary fat and cholesterol are not the cause of heart disease, folks. And you're much more likely to be in trouble um, by limiting fats than by just simply eating as much as you need uh, of fats to satisfy your appetite and to and to fuel your bodily processes. Uh, we need fat for so many things. And, um, and you know, with all the hype around vitamin D right now, well, one of the reasons we've become such a vitamin D deficient culture is that vitamin D is... You know, sunlight is not our only source of vitamin D, and it's mm-hmm. it's not a, an easily reliable source either unless you live in an equatorial region. And even 80% of the people I know who live in the Sun Belt are pretty severely deficient in vitamin D. Um, you know, part well, of course, part of what you need for the conversion um, of inactive vitamin D to active vitamin D in your skin is cholesterol, you know, evil cholesterol. Um but vitamin D, dietary vitamin D, is not does not come active dietary vitamin D does not come from plant sources, folks. It comes from animal fat. It is present in fat tissue, not just in the liver. People think it's a liver stored in the liver. It's not. It's stored in body fat. So when you eat a low fat diet, you're getting a low fat soluble, not just low fat diet, but low fat soluble nutrient diet, and this includes vitamin D. And vitamin A, which is not beta carotene, folks. Um, vitamin K, you know, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, um, in order, you know, there are a lot of people popping vitamin D pills who are on low fat diets, and good luck absorbing it, mm. because you have to have dietary fat in order to absorb fat soluble nutrients. You also have to have healthy uh, healthy gallbladder and healthy digestion, but that's a whole other topic. So. Wow. Yeah, I, earlier this year, or at, by the time this airs, it'll be last year, in last uh, <laughs> February 2009, let's put it that way, my wife Christine had her vitamin D check, Nora, and it was, yeah, are, you, are you sitting down? It was, I am, in fact. It was nine Nine. Yeah, I do see the that low. (laughs) Oh well, you know, I live here in the Pacific Northwest, and we we have epidemic low levels of of vitamin D up here. Partly because it's just you know we don't get that much sunlight. We're in a northern latitude, and in the winter time, the sun hardly ever shines. Yeah. Um, but um, but this is throughout the country, and I know you live in the Sun Belt, right? Yeah, I live in South Carolina, and actually, uh, we put her on ten thousand. uh, it was an MCG of, or IU, excuse me, IU, yeah. of uh, vitamin D3 gel caps for, oh. I guess, most of the year. And we recently got back her results, and that nine is now 52. 
that is much better. I know the vitamin D council says they 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 believe that the that the optimal range is between 60 and 80 to prevent most forms of cancer and right. you know to do but you know that's that's still that 52 is much better. She's getting there. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's definitely getting there. And, and one, one thing, thing that she noticed that is uh, she had a lot of like fibromyalgia type of pain that's all gone away. Oh sure. Uh, a, a lot of like intangibles. She also takes uh, uh, Paxil, and so she's able to, you know, not have so many of those episodes anymore. So it really has made a huge difference just with that one little thing. Yep, yep. It, it, there's no question that cognitive functioning, uh, energy levels. Uh, you know, people. One of the uh, really common symptoms of vitamin D deficiency is just sort of um, nondescript, just sort of aches and pains all over the body. Yep. Uh, one other thing, too, that is incredibly common nowadays that I am running into at an alarming rate because I do a lot of functional blood chemistry analysis, um, it's, you know, through my office, um, which is not necessarily designed to be diagnostic in nature. It's designed to kind of show people where certain imbalances are. Um, uh, I guess I can throw this in. I'll try to throw this into a nutshell because I kind of want to explain what I'm talking about. What a lot of people don't realize, when you go to the doctor uh, to get your blood drawn and all of that, you're not necessarily, uh, well, okay, so you get you get your blood drawn and the results come back and then your doctor looks at maybe a half dozen to a dozen markers that, that he ordered or she and finds that, okay, here are the values that came out. And then those values get weighed against something called a lab range or a reference yep. range. Yep. What a lot of people don't realize is that the lab range or reference range is not based on anything scientific. It is not standardized for anything. Lab ranges vary from lab to lab. They vary from area of the country to area of the country. And, um, and uh, you, when you all they really represent, basically, are two ends of a bell curve of everybody that went into that particular lab system for blood work. Right. So you're not getting compared to normal and healthy. What you're getting compared to is the old duffer that was standing in front of line in front of you carrying the oxygen tank, you know, at the blood draw place, right. and the woman in front of him who was on her second round of chemo checking up on how she was doing, and then the other woman in front of her who is diabetic and right. following up on her stuff. These are the people you're getting compared to. Right. And so... And, you know, as the population becomes less and less healthy, these ranges are becoming broader and broader and broader and less and less meaningful to the average person. And so organizations like the American Association of Clinical Chemists, the American Endocrine Society, they agree this is a real problem. And um, they have created what can be termed, um, some of these organizations have created functional ranges. And what they mean by functional range is they've, they've taken a cross-section of people that have been deemed to be quote-unquote normal and healthy. We're probably not talking about optimal health, but we're talking about people who aren't having any real symptoms right now. They're all above ground, presumably, um, and aren't on any medications. And so when you cross-section that and get two ends of that bell curve, what you have is a much narrower range, but it's a lot more meaningful to the average person. Mm -hmm. So if you're deviating from that range, it doesn't mean that you have pathology. It doesn't mean that you have a disease. What it means is that there's an imbalance, you know, one way or another. And it's really clear to see where potential problem areas are, and it gives you a chance to head that off before it becomes a real problem. Um, and gives you an awareness of things that you might otherwise not have. And so um, I 
will typically look when I do these reports for people, um, I'll typically look at about a, a Chem 24 panel, so I look at a much broader range of, of markers, and then that I can then kind of correlate to each other and look at what's what's really going on. And um, I always look at vitamin D levels, 25-hydroxy-D uh, yeah. uh, with folks, and I can count on less than one hand. Um, actually, I can count probably on about two fingers, uh, not including myself, where I've actually found uh, adequate D levels. Mm. And and one thing that's epidemic that I'm running into a lot now, uh, because I do all these blood chemistry reports, uh, and I, I will sometimes test for certain markers that, that uh, clarify this, is so many people are autoimmune. Um, uh, Hashimoto's right now is just, uh, it is, it's unbelievably epidemic. Mm-hmm. And by the way, the um, 98% and maybe more of all Hashimoto's is very, very strongly linked to gluten intolerance, uh, gluten sensitivity. Um, Tell us so, what Hashimoto's is for people. So what Hashimoto's know. is, it's basically an autoimmune thyroid disorder. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about autoimmune anything, you're not really, you know, autoimmune thyroid or, you know, um, you know, type 1 diabetes, you know, that type of autoimmune or or whatever you're you're not talking about uh with Hashimoto's a thyroid problem as many people would think you're really talking about an immune problem and it needs to be dra- addressed or is most effectively addressed on that level um the thyroid may need some support too but that is almost never the the primary issue and that's just the whole other topic actually that's going to be covered on my show today by the way there you go yeah but Anyway, um, so people who are autoimmune tend to not utilize vitamin D very effectively. Mm-hmm. So the requirement for vitamin D is easily double what it is for the average person. And wow. um, what I often like to recommend people do uh, who are autoimmune or, um, or they want to start taking vitamin D, but they don't know what their levels are yet, which I always encourage people to test, 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 and retest, please, so that you know what you're dealing with. It's not that expensive to do. Right. And then, and then you know, and then you can you know, test in a few months and keep yourself honest and, and, and see what's, what you're getting from what you're doing. But I tend to like recommending the emulsified forms of D. Um, when you have emulsification, you have something that where people have difficulty, for instance, digesting fats, which lots of people have gallbladder problems. Um, and, uh, you know, when a nutrient is both fat and water soluble, it's a little more, it's a little easier to absorb it for people who have difficulty digesting fats. Um, it's also the other nice thing about emulsification is that it can also help you more efficiently excrete what it is your body can't use. You're less likely to get unhealthy buildups of vitamin D for people who get a little overly exuberant about it and decide they're going to start chugging out more, that more is better and whatever. Mm. Um, the other part to vitamin D, of course, is that, uh, that doesn't get talked about in the press is that for every single receptor for vitamin D that you have on every cell in your body, there are at least two receptors for vitamin A. And um, vitamin A and D, and not beta carotene, not the same thing, um, but true preformed you know, palmitic acid vitamin A, or rather not palmitic or retinoic acid, um, 
is needed in order to make healthy use of vitamin D. And there are other cofactors too. But um, so I usually recommend. Well, I I typically recommend that people go out and just buy a good, high quality commercial grade cod liver oil. Don't have any illusions about cod liver oil giving you all the vitamin D that you need. Commercial Mm -hmm. cod liver oil is just woefully inadequate in its vitamin D content. And in order to get the amount of vitamin D that you'd need to out of it, you'd have to take really unhealthy levels of A. Um, And so I wouldn't highly recommend that. If you can eat, if you like beef liver or you can stand it, (laughs) um, you know, one serving of beef liver a week would cover you and you wouldn't have to supplement with cod liver oil. Sardines? uh, Well, sardines have some vitamin D, but it's hard to know how much you're getting. Yeah, and of course it depends. Are they wild caught? Are they farm raised? You know, right. all that right. kind of stuff. You have to take into account. So if you want to take, you know, measurable amounts, especially if you're super deficient. Um, I mean, always. I, I think sardines are great food, but um, I say take a little bit of cod liver oil every day, and then and then uh, try to find an emulsified form of vitamin D if you can find it. Um, I use one by Biotics, which is a healthcare practitioner brand uh, called BioDemulsion Forte. One drop, it gives you 2,000 IU of vitamin D and it just, you know, and it's cheap and it lasts a long time and, you know, you just put a couple drops on your finger and lick that off and you're done for the day Um, and it doesn't taste like anything. Um, So that, I, I like that product a lot, but you'd have to go to your natural healthcare provider in order to get that one. I'm not sure what commercial brands offer emulsified vitamin D, but it's worth looking for. Hmm. Well, Nora, we are boogieing along in this Encore Week edition of, <laughs> of, of your interview, and I definitely want to get to some of the questions that sure. people had for you because they had some really good ones for you that I think you'll really enjoy answering. So let's start with Steve. He says, one thing I'm really confused about, Nora, is how the glycemic index and glycemic load factor into what is good for me. For example, I see prunes have a very low GI as far as fruit goes, but they're loaded with carbs. And I see the same thing to a lesser extent with peanuts and grapefruit. Yeah. Are these foods okay to eat? And should I care more about a food's net carbs or the glycemic load? Oh, geez. All these terms, well, I just, you know, I want to skip over, you know, the basic definitions of glycemic index and glycemic load because really there are a lot of, there are at least a a couple different reasons why something might be, uh, you know, low glycemic. Um, You know, either it doesn't have a lot of, um, there just isn't a lot of, you know, sugar uh, content in general uh, in the food, um, or it is, um, it's high in fiber. You know, there, there's fiber there, uh, or uh, it may not impact your insulin, but you may have a high level of fructose, mm. um, which is going to have a whole different impact on your blood sugar. Um, and in some ways, it could be argued that fructose is much worse right. uh, than because it tends to stay in your bloodstream a lot longer because it doesn't provoke insulin responses readily. It's going to be more glycating to you. Uh, glycating meaning that it, it is going to combine with proteins and, and, and fats in your bloodstream, cause them uh, to uh, become sort of sticky and misshapen and start to malfunction. And this is called, you know, glycosylation. The process is called either glycosylation or glycation, depending on who you talk to. And then you end up with these advanced glycation or glycosylation end products, which are the very things 
that cause that are responsible for aging. And so the degree to which we can minimize the consumption of anything with sugar content, and yes, this includes the natural sweeteners too. Um, people are going to, I, there are people that get really emotional about this, but I'm sorry, honey is sugar. Um, and, agave, right. and agave, you know, which is basically a, an industrial byproduct of tequila processing, folks. It's not, you know, this, you know, benign natural thing in nature that our ancestors once, you know, you know, put on their acorn pancakes or whatever. It's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a highly processed product. Right. Um, and uh, I know it's the new darling of the uh, natural foods industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it's a little lower glycemic. It's probably higher in fructose. That doesn't make it better for you. And the glycemic thing just gets very, very confusing. Yeah. Um, yeah. The degree to which you can avoid provoking insulin, the degree to which you can avoid glycation, is going to be is only going to benefit you in terms of health. I'm not going to say don't ever eat a blueberry. Uh, don't ever eat, you know. Um, um, any kind of fruit of any kind ever. Um, I'm not telling anybody to do anything. I, I think what my book is about is giving people this sort of information. Here, right. here is what these things do, and you decide, you know, for yourself what's optimal for you. But the message is that the degree to which you can avoid things that are going to provoke insulin or that are going to glycate you, right. the better off you know you are and the healthier you're going to be by far. Well, as Dr. James Carlson likes to say, sugar is sugar is sugar, whether it comes from an apple, a banana, or just the white refined sugar. Right. Um, it, right. It's pretty much going to affect you the, in the same way. So there's no more, uh, I guess, uh, prestige to eating an apple or a banana than there is eating table sugar. Right. I mean, and they are, you know, absorbed and utilized a little differently, and some are going to provoke insulin more and all that kind of a thing. It's, mm-hmm. But it's still sugar, folks. And, um, your body is is there are going to be consequences to any form of sugar that you consume, and I'm not convinced in any way that the trade off with something like honey is worth it. Oh, but honey has all these other wonderful properties and enzymes and nutrients, etc. Well, a lot of the so-called nutrients that are in honey end up getting used up just processing the sugar mm. that's in it, um, and I am not uh, convinced that that. Um, you know that that honey is the ticket to you know to a long life for anybody. I think that if there are people, I get these arguments. Oh, you know, there's this long this these people this people group ate lots of honey and they lived you know to be centenarians. And um, I'm sure that it was probably in spite of the fact that they ate honey and not necessarily because of it. So um, it's 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 a point of view, but it's that's that's the way I see it. Right. Let's move on to another question, this time from Susan, who asks, is it necessary to consume a ketogenic diet for weight and health benefits of low-carb? Well, my definition of ketogenic is basically where you are burning fat for fuel. So, Mm -hmm. yes, (laughs) if you want to lose healthy weight, in other words, you want to lose the excess fat on your body that you'd rather not see. I mean, if you want to lose muscle mass, well, then no, that's fine. You can eat high-carb and get scrawny or get fat or whatever. Um, But if you do want to lose healthy weight, then to some degree you're going to have to be, uh, you know, at least mild to moderately ketogenic um, all of the time. And uh, and that's really the natural state for us to be in. And, um, you know, our body uses, 
ketones uh, for fuel and every pretty much cell or tissue can use ketones. And we also use to some degree free fatty acids, you know, for fuel too. Um, but the degree to which you can do that and be a fat burner instead of a sugar burner is, is going to um, and benefit your health, you know, well beyond um, just what it's going to do for you in terms of weight loss. Right. Got one more question for you. This one's from Greg. He asks, what are your views on exercise, particularly as it relates to increasing lung capacity for longevity? Well, I, you know, lung capacity is one of those things that is directly correlated. You know, the greater the lung capacity, generally, the longer lives the individual. Uh, so lung capacity is a big thing. We're designed to exercise uh, in a very anaerobic way. In other words, you know, our primitive ancestors, they didn't have running shoes. They didn't have gym memberships. Mm-hmm. Um, they they were physical, you know, day to day. They did various things. You know, they had to walk around and, you know, create their shelters and clothing, and, and they had to hunt. And sometimes they were hunted. <laughs> and so... If you're running away for something from something that is uh, chasing you, or you're chasing after something that you want to eat, you're going to be um, you're going to be putting out a burst of anaerobic energy to do that, uh, and that is you know these, these exertion would have been one of the major ways in which we would have gotten real exercise, and think about it logically, our ancestors would not have wasted time. Um, jogging for hours on end. Um, by and large, they would not have, um, you know, spent, you know, an hour or two um, lifting, you know, you know, one minute to the next, you know, heavy weights and whatever else. Why would they ever have wasted their energy on that? Um, it would have been brief bouts of exertion. Lifting something heavy, uh, you know, they they certainly would have been up and around and using their their bodies just walking around, but um, they weren't doing marathon workouts every day like a lot of people do. Um, One thing that I've I've recently stumbled across that uh, is kind of a a newer thing um, that I'm enthusiastic about is something called kettlebell training. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a pretty exceptional way to get into shape, and it it involves the use of what's basically a cast iron ball with these handles of varying weights, which you can use in a variety of movements, um, both slow and and, and ballistic uh, movements. And they work you in a full range of natural movements. They offer excellent resistance training at all levels of challenge, and they can be used for developing uh, strength and real, really great for core training and flexibility and even cardiopulmonary um, excellence. Um, so, I mean, it really lends itself well uh, to that, you know, brief, intense burst of, of, of uh, you know, that interval training approach. So, so far, they seem to be as far as I've found, kind of the ultimate fitness tool. It's it's what Lance Armstrong uses to get into shape, and mm-hmm. they really lend themselves well to interval training. And those you know those brief bouts of intense activity our Paleolithic bodies are really best suited for. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of YouTube videos about kettlebell training. So definitely check out YouTube.com. And yeah, and and, and ladies, don't be. Um, don't be intimidated by all of the the macho tripping that you see going on in those kettlebell videos because I find my you know eyes getting stuck in the back of my head <laughs> yeah. rolling them around it's like oh for crying out loud well, you know who are you, what are you trying to prove here um I, there are just as many women that I kettlebell train as right. there as there are men and um 
you know, you you can't develop a female body any any faster, any better. I think any other way, it's it's pretty uh, it's pretty great stuff. Yeah. Well, we're running out of time, but I wanted to tell you a story, um, Nora, about the other day I was in a restaurant and a man in a wheelchair came in with oxygen. Uh-huh. He was uh, starting to talk to another customer he knew, and I heard them chatting, and the issue of his diabetes came up, and he said, I just don't understand. My blood sugars just stay way, way too high all the time. I just don't understand. And 10 minutes later, I knew exactly why <laughs> when I saw him eating pancakes with syrup dripping off of them, <laughs> he, he was definitely a bona fide carbivore to the max. Yeah. And people like him are typical. What do you think it's going to take for people like that to get that they have a problem? Well, I mean, my, my goal is to help people understand how their body works, understand, you know, what constitutes a carbohydrate, that understand that, um, you know, I, I mean, what he doesn't understand about his issue I, is hard for me to understand because most people think of diabetes as a disease of blood sugar, which it is not. It's a disease of insulin resistance. Mm-hmm. But chronic um, blood sugar bombardment um, is certainly going to generate that insulin resistance. And um, I guess, you know, there's a real disconnect between what people are taught in the conventional medical paradigm, in the mainstream media, uh, what people are taught even by you know, diabetic organizations, right. and what how our physiology was really designed and, and how this whole thing really works. And there are vested agendas and keeping us thinking about these things a certain way. And a physician will typically tell a diabetic patient, oh, it wasn't your fault, it wasn't anything you did, it wasn't anything you ate, this is genetic, um, and here, take lots of glucophage, and that's going to make things better, And when in fact it may very well make things worse, because all you're doing is adding more insulin, uh, which is only serving to exacerbate the problem by increasing the insulin resistance over time. The only way you get insulin under control is by getting that blood sugar issue under control. And that blood sugar issue isn't this genetic thing that came up to bite you in the butt one day because your body was out to get you and decided, you know, let, you know, you know let's plaque his arteries today. <laughs> you know, you're, the, the issue is the consumption of a food that we were never designed to consume in any significant quantity. Um, and, and, and making that, you know, the staple uh, in your diet. And unfortunately, when you're physiologically adapted to burning sugar as your primary source of fuel, um, it's, it's, it's hard to convince people that that's the very thing that they need to give up because their body is going to, you know, cause them to crave that fuel even at its own detriment. And which is why I wrote the recent article that I did on, on my blog about taming the carbohydrate craving monster, right. um, which um, I was glad to hear that you liked. Um, yeah, I really liked it, and I encourage people to check it out. I'll have a link to it in the show notes section at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. But, Nora, it, it was fantastic. In fact, there were things in there that I, I was not even aware of uh, regarding the, uh, the nutrients that you could uh, – put in your mouth. I knew about L-glutamine, but I was not familiar with the gymnema sylvestri. Yeah, yeah. Gymnema is, that stuff is, it is amazing. The the down, not the downside, but the problem is that most commercial brands of gymnema really only uh, have 
something like 500 milligrams per capsule or something. And what the research seems to show is that it takes about 4,000 milligrams three times a day. Wow, wow. <laughs> um, or up to twice that for some individuals. Now, there's a a nutraceutical company that's, again, a healthcare practitioner company called Standard Process. Uh, um, actually, they, they, also, they also own a MediHerb that makes a gymnema that is 4,000 milligrams per tablet, and the tablet's pretty small, actually. Um, and so that's what I tend to, you know, sell to my clients. Uh, it works so well, it's ridiculous. And the really cool thing about gymnema, which is also kind of a cruel thing for some folks, is that if you get it on your tongue, you chew it, it will actually destroy your ability to even taste sugar for anywhere from like two to four hours. Oh, wow. So if you chew up a gymnema tablet or get gymnema on your tongue somehow, and then you decide to sit down and eat a chocolate fudge brownie, that brownie will taste like sawdust to you, which, um, you know, if you're going out to a party or something like that, maybe, you know, where you're going to be tempted with a lot of things this time of year, lots of people are, um, it's, it's a great tool. But if you just ingest it and swallow the tablet without chewing it, um, it actually can serve to help enhance insulin sensitivity a little bit, um, but it will tend to just knock out the carb craving. And people just find that they're just not even thinking about it. And I look upon it not as an ongoing management tool forever and ever, but that is a short-term bicycle training wheels um, uh, management tool that is really, really useful. Well, Nora Gedgaudis, it has been such a pleasure having you back here for Encore Week. You closed out the week for us, and uh, we appreciate you coming back to share about the work that you're doing at primalbody-primalmind.com. Be sure to check it out and also listen to her podcast show, which I'll have a link to in the show notes section at theliveinlowcarbshow.com slash show notes. Well, thank you again for being here, and keep up the great work you are doing. You oh, are thank really you. doing fantastic work. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on, and uh, it's, it's a privilege. Visit our website at theliveinlowcarbshow.com and leave us your comments. Thank you for listening. Disc of Light.